Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's bad enough when you have a friend rip into you. But when you have friends, plural, that gang up, oh, it can be overwhelming. And that is where we find Job. Today on Abounding Grace, join us. Hi there, and welcome to Abounding Grace. Pastor Gary Wagner continues our survey of Job today. We find ourselves in chapter 18, where Bildad picks up where Eliphaz left off to continue to rip into Job about how they believe Job's view of God is all wrong, and he needs to fix it if he's going to find himself relieved of the serious trials he finds himself in the middle of. But is that really the case? Well, we're looking at that here today on Abounding Grace. Won't you join us? From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, here's Pastor Gary Wagner on this edition of Abounding Grace. You know, the whole idea that you need a period of time to sow wild oats and be rebellious is a doctrine right out of the pit of hell. It is one of Satan's favorite doctrines because he knows If the young eat his sour grapes and if they drink of that poison cistern while they are young, it often sets their soul on edge for many years. So that even if God does recover you later, you are buried and broken very often for many, many years after. So how do you avoid that? You must. You must spend time in God's Word. Oh, I understand it's not always comfortable to dwell in God's Word. It's not comfortable to walk before God and have His Word pierce our hearts. But oh, the opposite. The alternative of walking in darkness and being self-blinded of having other people able to see things that you can't see, and then you insist, no, that's not true of me. It's because you're not in the Word, and you're not meditating on it, and that can cause you great misery. But in God's light, oh, we see light. So when we hear what Bildad says here, we need to be warned against this pit, this trap of sin. And we can't say, well, I can be forgiven later, or I love Jesus, so I can always come back to God later. God doesn't usually reward that kind of presumption. It is dangerous to think, well, in my case, I'm sure it's going to be different. Remember, Bildad was right. God doesn't overturn the normal way he deals with men just for you. If we dabble with the world, if we play fast and loose with God's grace, don't expect that everything is going to turn out okay in the end. 
I fear that many, many people are in hell that at one point said to themselves, I will be godly later on when it suits me, and later never comes. I will trust in Jesus later or more consistently later. I'll get serious about God later, but later never comes. Because the more you live in darkness, the more you lose the truth until it is just a dim speck somewhere back in your life. And then you begin to think to yourself, I don't think I can ever get back there again. But remember something. If any of us are wandering from God's light today, that God is merciful. Bildad doesn't mention this. Beloved, just call upon Christ. There is no pit so deep, there is no trouble so great, no sin so horrible that God is unwilling to deliver and rescue and save you and restore you. Don't ever say there's no hope for me. Those are the words of Satan. He was whispering that in Judas's ear as he put the rope around his own neck and his neck snapped and he went to hell forever. There is no hope for me. Don't think that. If God delivered Jonah from the depths of the sea, if he delivered Peter from his pride, he can deliver you, and he will, if you just call upon him. Now, Bildad concludes in verses 11 through 21 with a description of the destiny of the wicked, this dark destiny that he gives us in more detail. But you need to remember something. He is not saying here, Job, these things might happen to you if you don't repent. He is saying, Job, these things are happening to you because you are wicked, because you are a hypocrite. And by the way, so that we don't miss this, the details here are very closely parallel with Job's present sufferings here to miss. Notice, Job, you have lost your children, verse 19. You've lost your confidence, verse 14. You've lost your health, verse 12. You've lost your wealth, verse 16. Why is this? Bill said, Bildad says, because Job, it is your heart that is wicked. That's why you have lost all these things. Bildad's operating assumption is these things only happen in the tabernacle of the wicked. These things only happen among people who do not know God. So Bildad is saying, Job, we were very happy to weep with you for a while. But we're not going to sit here and listen to your theological conundrums and your wanting to debate with God. These things are happening to you because you are wicked. And you know, it's amazing how men reputed to be so wise could be so blind. And you know, at many levels, our hearts should break for Job. But we should also be humbled by God's goodness. Because if he didn't give us his word and the understanding of that word, we would be just as blind as Job's friends. Bildad's main point in verses 11 through 14 is that the reason Job is terrified Verse 11, the reason he has lost his strength and his health and he is ready to die. Verse 12, the reason his skin is covered with boils, the reason the firstborn of the death has devoured his strength is because Job 
is wicked. Now we should take these things to heart because there is no rest for the wicked, as Isaiah says. And their conscience is trembling. And that's why men and nations become afraid and then allow things like the Patriot Act to become law. We often wonder, why is bureaucracy becoming so humongous today? Why is there so much babble building? Why is there so much money being printed and so much being spent? And why is there so much tyranny? Is it because unbeliever it is because unbelievers try? Unbelievers try to shield themselves from God and his judgment. They are fearful. And sin is, of course, the ultimate cause of all the diseases in the world and explains the weaknesses of homes and families and rampant crime and terrorism. So we can readily identify with a lot of what Bildad says here. He says in verse 14, all of their confidence shall be rooted out of their tabernacle and it shall bring them to the king of terrors. Now this king of terrors is an interesting idea in this translation. It is probably meant to be the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Believers fear God. He is the king of glory. So we know what we fear, but the wicked don't know exactly what does terrorize them. Their consciences at some level do tremble. Fear dwells in their tabernacle. Sin does deprive men of courage. You know, we wonder today, why can't men stand up against evil? Why can't the conservatives really stand up against evil and call it for what it really is? It is because they are haunted by the same fear as the liberals. It is like Robert Louis Dabney said over a hundred years ago, conservatism is nothing but the pale shadow of liberalism, both of them running away from God in fear because they are unwilling to confess their sins. And that is one of the reasons why a person doesn't go to college anymore to learn objectively what truth is, particularly if you're in the humanities program. You go, you know, and you pay these big bucks so they can ask you little questions like this. What do you think this story really says? How does this appeal to you? Even in science, the more objective departments, there is no cogent view of the universe anymore. There's no unified worldview because, you know, that might crack open the door for God. Because he is man's ultimate environment. And all the big systems in philosophy and science have always grappled with God and his word. And we don't want to do that. We would rather endure the silliness of everyone coming up with their own truth. We don't want to have anything like absolutes. Oh, God forbid. And in many respects, this is the brimstone of hell. Verse 15, already being scattered upon the dwelling place of the wicked. And it burns and it dries up men's life. And it even makes education a joke. So in verse 17, Bildad says, Your name is going to be forgotten. You'll be driven out into the darkness, chased out of the world. Verse 19, this verse has definitely reference to Job. You'll have neither son nor nephew among you, nor any remaining in your dwellings. 
Now, Bildad has given a very good description of what hell will look like. But the problem is, life on earth is never hell. I don't care what men say. Life on earth is never, ever, ever, ever even close to hell, ever. It is true, sometimes God's judgment may make us think, man, this is possibly a little bit like hell. And they do leave man utterly astonished, like Bildad says in verse 20, and make men very, very afraid. But it is equally true that those who are in league with the devil and don't know God and will not repent, that they convince themselves that God doesn't exist because they don't want to deal with that. And they are self-deceived, and the wicked can be quite often even bold in their sin because of this. They don't seem to lack any assertiveness at all. They seem to be very self-assured, all an illusion. They enjoy some measure of peace and sanity. They enjoy a degree of prosperity, the kind, that kind of belies their destiny. Why is this? It is because God is good to his enemies. And their destiny is never, never, never fully realized in this life. It isn't even partially realized, my friends. Oh, there are often little snippets of it here and there. But Jesus said, I do not come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. And in history, God's main work right now is long-suffering toward his enemies and then blessing the kingdom of the Messiah. So Bildad is wrong because God is long-suffering and patient and waiting for his people to be gathered out of the masses of fallen humanity. But he is wrong because Jesus has plunged the cross into the sword of the evil one. Bildad is wrong. Oh, he would be right if God's judgments in history were immediate and inflexible and absolute. He would be right if God did not treat his enemies with astonishing kindness and if Jesus had not come and set up his kingdom. But the Lord has done all these things. So that destiny still awaits. And thus, why John told the early believers, possess your souls in patience. Because when we see evil in the world, and we are grieved by it, and our souls are vexed by it, it is very tempting to say, God, please judge. I've done this myself, especially over the last few years, crying out, Lord, come quickly. Your church needs you. We're asleep. We need you to come. Your enemies are blaspheming your name. Lift up yourself. Plead your own cause. Remember your covenant with us. This has been very much on my heart and on my mind all the time. But I forget God is gracious and full of mercy and slow to anger toward his enemies. And that must be the balance. That's why we must possess our souls in patience. That's why we must be diligent and keep the oil in our lamps through prayer, like the parable Jesus told. We want God to come in and we want him to deal with the tares now. But remember what Jesus said. If God came in like we think he should, Lord, you've got to pull up all those wicked men. But guess what? In many respects, our lives, at least in the United States, are intertwined with theirs. And Jesus said, we could be pulled up too. 
Oh, we have to deal with the wicked harshly from time to time. God, after all, deals with them at different times by sifting them in anticipation of judgment. But he is merciful, and he will preserve this earth until all of his purposes are realized. And he will use the wicked to praise himself. Now I say in closing that these verses 11 through 21 strongly warn us to flee from any sin in our lives. The picture here is very vivid. This is the destiny of those who rebel against God. Like he says in verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. So let's review what that is. Verses 5 through 7, darkness. 8 through 10, traps. Verse 11, terrors of confidence, fear of judgment, no strength. Verse 12 through 13. Verse 14, confidence gone, a moral coward. Verse 15, evil in his house and brimstone. Some of the fury of hell over his own dwelling. His roots dried up, his name cursed, he is driven from the light. Hell will be as he has described it. We must repent and stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Paul told the Hebrews, we belong to Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfastly to the end. All who forget God or do not know God will be cast into hell. And there God's judgment will be absolute. It will be inflexible. It will be unchanging without any hope of mercy. But remember, why did God send Daniel into Babylon? Why did he send Jonah into Nineveh? Why did he send Paul to Rome to stand before Nero? And especially, why did God send his own son into the world? So he could warn and save sinners. So I think there's another lesson here in closing. God is kind to his enemies to give witness against them, yes, but also to give a testimony to us. I am the God who turns my enemies into my friends. I am the God who is merciful. Beloved, I rejoice that we don't live in a world described by Bildad because it would be a living hell. It would mean there is no more grace for sinners, that there is not even common grace, that the sides are already absolutely drawn and there is no possibility of the goats becoming sheep by God's grace or tares becoming wheat by regeneration. But that is not the case. Paul in Corinthians described homosexuality, lesbianism, fornication of various kinds, all kinds of uncleanness, and he said, that was you. Such were some of you, those are some of the best past tenses in all the Bible. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as much as we should dread and hate wickedness, we should also love and cherish God's overcoming mercy to sinners. So as you think on the evil of our day, what are you wringing your hands about, beloved? Oh, I'm so worried 
the world is just so evil. And yes, I'm with you to some degree. It is palpable. We are seeing it. It's brazen. It's bold. But God is merciful. And he is slow to anger. And he is so gracious. Think about this. Did he send someone to preach the gospel to you? Or maybe to your father? Maybe to your grandfather? But somewhere along the line, God said to the people in your family, such were some of you. But I'm sending an angel of mercy into this family, and I'm going to bring you out of your wickedness. So we should speak of the God who has compassion on sinners with joy. And yes, it looks bleak in our day. But did it not look bleak in Nineveh? Didn't it look bleak in Rome? Hasn't it looked bleak everywhere God has sent his gospel? But he is the God who saves men and loves men, and he sent his son not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So Bildad didn't simply, didn't supply any encouragement to Job. He just swung his gavel and he said, Job, all these things are happening to you because you are a wicked hypocrite. But we can turn Bildad's message to good. And remember, the world is not as he described it. Hell is as he described it. But the world is not. Beloved, this is God's world. This is the age of Christ. This is the day of salvation. And if we don't see more people saved, then we've got to pray more. This is the age of the Messiah. This is the age of Christ. If we don't see more people being saved, we should speak more of God's mercy. That needs to be our testimony. Not, oh, can you believe those bozos in Washington? Instead, it should be, can you believe the bozo I once was? But God saved me. And he can do the same for you. That is how we should profit from what Bildad says here. Beloved, we're still breathing. We're not in hell. Oh, God is merciful. So let us speak God's truth and expect for the God who has set his son at his right hand to save the world. For God so loved the world. Now, please, people, don't get bogged down with, well, does that mean the elect? You know what? It has nothing to do with the elect in that verse. It is simply saying that there is the world, this fall, this massive fallen, corrupt, putrefying wickedness. But the holy God loves the world. And he sent his son into it to save it. And let me tell you something. If God crucified his son to save the world, the world is going to be saved. We are testimonies to that in part. Of course, it's not done yet. The gospel is still going forth. We need to pray for our missionaries every day. But we need to pray for us. Think about our mission field right here. The mission field to our children, our extended family, our, our neighbors, the people we work with. Beloved, we don't have to go wander off to a foreign country. You know, it's easy to go off to a faraway country where no one knows you. But what about in the workplace where everyone does know you? 
or in your families. You need to tell them there is a God who can, had even compassion on me who is such a wretch. Let that be our testimony this week and for the rest of our lives. And let's pray God would expand our influence and bring many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through us. He who is the one who delivers men from darkness into light. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We praise you for your mercy, for your compassion. Thank you that you are long-suffering and that your long-suffering is our salvation. Father, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the light. Help us to give, to live as if we are certain of this. And help us to be bold to teach this to others. And expand the tent of RHC and make us more true conquerors for he who loves us. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.